Hi, this is Maris Alberti, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going pretty well. How about you? Pretty awesome. I hear you're about to take a little trip. Uh, I am. It's a it's a driving trip, so it's not like you know a big trip. It's a little little driving trip going to the, nice. the desert for a couple days. Sounds like fun. Hey, um, who is on the show today? On the show today is Maurice Alberti. Very very cool. I remember when our intrepid producer Alana Cody told me that we could get Maurice Alberti on the show. I flipped my lid. She is an amazing cinematographer uh, with roots going back into my beloved '90s indie movie world, and uh, I really loved talking to her. I loved her insight, and she was also very cool because her older work, both documentary and, and narrative, we went into so much detail that she actually came back and we did a second recording just so we could talk about about her newer stuff, including stuff, uh, you know, little movies you might have heard of, like The Wrestler and Creed. So uh, she <laughs> she's awesome. Love her work. It was very exciting to get to talk to her. But before we get into that, you uh, you have a close focus segment in mind, correct? Well, yeah, I thought maybe it maybe it deserves talking about George R.R. R. Martin. People who are Game of Thrones fans will definitely know who he is as the creator of basically the, all the original work in which Game of Thrones is, is based it's on. It's amazing that he did that while also producing the Beatles. Am I right? Sorry. <laughs> Joke for old people. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. here's the thing. He just signed a mid-eight figure, so we're talking like 40 to 60 million probably, uh, reported. We don't, we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Deal, first look deal with HBO. And there's already multiple Game of Thrones spinoffs in development so essentially with the announcement of this deal this first look deal hbo max is saying that they are hitching their star to uh the game of thrones wagon for the immediate future going forward that is the tent pole in which hbo max is going to be uh going after and going after their new uh viewers i think it's really interesting because all of the streaming services to some degree well no, i can't say all of them but many of them have really said recently that oh tent poles tent poles is what we want and i'm thinking specifically of like Netflix because uh, they have a new executive for television and uh, and forgive me if I pronounce this wrong but Bella Bajaria I believe is is how she pronounces her name mm-hmm. but she said that she's very much interested in tentpole production looking for tentpoles Apple TV uh, a little bit earlier in 2020 in the in the summer when Greyhound became a, a real breakout hit their spokesperson said that 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 their streaming services looking for tentpoles tentpoles is what they're going to be what about. does a tentpole mean like in the theatrical release world a tentpole means this is the movie that every Everyone's going to show up and shell out money right there and then at the movie theater at the box office to go sit and watch in that theater. But it's a high in, profile it, project in the, high profile in the project. streaming world, though, like if I've already subscribed to Netflix and have no intention to unsubscribe from Netflix and I feel like Netflix is almost like the Facebook of streaming services. It's got the most penetration. What does a tentpole represent to a Netflix or to a Disney Plus or to an HBO Max? 
I think it's exactly the same thing as it is to the traditional motion picture studios. And it's what they're betting on. It's what they're going to promote. It's what they're going to put their resources behind. They're looking for the grand slam. They're looking for the home runs. They're not looking for base hits. They're looking for like, how are we going to attract people over to our service? How are we going to get them to sign up? How are we going to keep them subscribed? We continue to make these big spectacle things. Now, Disney, Disney is all tent poles. Basically, that that if you go through Disney Plus, they do have some Disney programming, some kids stuff in there, but but really their whole service looks like tent poles. It's got they got Marvel, they got Star Wars, they got yeah. you know the big big television shows like Simpsons. That's what they're about. The only people out there who haven't really said, hey, look, we're, we're going for tent poles right now is Amazon, which uh, I think the, the criticism of Amazon, though, is they don't exactly know which direction they're going because they do try a bunch of different things. But it's been a really good critically acclaimed season for them. Like they're getting more critical acclaim than they ever have. Hulu, of course, also uh, they haven't come out and said we're all about tent poles. Uh, but I think also Hulu, uh, Peacock, uh, Amazon, they're all I'm not going to say schizophrenic, but I think they're maybe still finding what if there is a thing that they're going to base themselves around. And and frankly, I don't think they all need to do that. But, you know, Paramount has said Star Trek, where we're Paramount Plus, which used to be, you know, CBS All Access, Star Trek, if it's if it has any. Yeah, they with canceled Trek, the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. I was shocked about that. Like, I, I really thought, like, you know, it's Jordan Peele. Give him a few seasons to figure it all out. I didn't love every episode of the first season, but I thought it was a really promising, cool new take on the Twilight Zone for for sure. And I was shocked that they they let it go. You know, um, I I don't want to say that the nerds have inherited this the streaming services or the nerds have have completely no, no taken only over, HBO but, Max where the but, nerds muscled them into creating the <laughs> Snyder cut. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but they did. You could make the same claim for for Paramount and Disney and and everything else too, because you know, really, Comic Con uh, wasn't held last year because of the pandemic and they've now announced it's going to come back in in november they're going to do some sort of event but really the sort of stuff that you would see debut and launch at comic-con and have a bunch of fanfare and a bunch of hoopla behind it that's sort of the tent poles for all the different streaming services right now they're all yeah. trying to have like some sort of and i don't want to say comic book but i want to say like wild fantasy or science fiction or or what whatever it might be they they want they want to be able to brand themselves a thing and i think that genre kind of does it for them i mean genre is kind of you no, know it's kind of become i, a, I mean i'm all i'm all for it i just uh you know i feel like what all the streaming services want is more subscriptions that's their mm. entire mo and uh you know with netflix i think I, I want to say I read an article or I heard through the grapevine or something that they started realizing when they were doing TV series that they would they drop a new TV series that would attract new subscriptions and then they would cancel that show like after two seasons because that two seasons was about all the juice that they could get out of it in terms of new subscriptions and that is their model for how they make m more money. You know, I mean, I think everyone's ongoing subscription is definitely making them money, but as they grow and, you know, as they're all very growth based. And I think the Snyder Cut is actually a really good, that's an interesting look into the tentpole mentality that goes into a streaming service and almost accidentally because it was meant to be a theatrical feature, although it's four hours long, but I don't think I've known uh, so many people to have an opinion on a four hour long movie ever before in my life, which means that. 
I, I think that that probably drove subscriptions like through the roof. And if I wasn't already subscribed to HBO Max, I might have subscribed just to check it out because it's such a weird artifact. And I did like it. I'm not slagging on the on the Snyder Cut. But, you know, like, would I have subscribed to Disney Plus just for WandaVision or just for The Mandalorian? Or are we going to be getting... I mean, I guess, you know, when you look at Disney Plus, there's a lot of original offerings that are tied to other properties that they have in those two instances anyway. And there's going to be more Star Wars related TV series. And there's already The Falcon and The Winter Soldier, which is yet another MCU TV series. So, you know, like that stuff's going to chug along. I don't know. I'm, I'm just interested to see where the feature length film i.e. like the 90 minute to you know maybe two and a half hour long movie kind of evolved through a certain phenomenology of early theatrical movies you know because the early movies were all short subjects and then you know you had b pictures and newsreels and blah 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 and it all boiled down to this length that we all kind of accepted like that's a movie and a tv show was usually 30 minutes or an hour and now we're sort of in this uh, Wild West kind of thing where you can have a four hour long movie where I, I think it is understood that you're probably going to stop it and go to the bathroom or watch half of it today and half of it tomorrow or whatever you're going to do. Like it's not meant to be sat down and, and watched all in a row in one theatrical experience the way a feature film is. So like what do we see evolving out of these streamers and like what I, and I guess tentpole to me is terminology from the theatrical experience not terminology from TV and TV you would have like sweeps you know May sweeps. Sure that's fair 100%. I think the real interesting discussion and question should be right now though is where does this leave independent film where does this leave independent productions and how do they emerge come on home to vimeo independence just (laughs) put it on vimeo and give it a password and people can watch it on their tv you know, uh, I, I think that one of these big streamers is going to figure out a way to market independence to a, a, a broader audience and really have like, obviously there's streamers like Sundance Channel and that sort of thing. But I, I feel like one of these big players is going to eventually figure out their format so that it's not just showing you the same 12 movies over and over again. Every time you, you log in, it's going to show you stuff that is really actually better curated for you. I had to take a picture uh, I'm, I'm giving it away, but I, my short end is going to harken back to this. And I think that actually we should uh, actually get to the interview. We should probably get to the interview now with Maurice Alberti. We've been chatting about this for a while. And let's get to what the, the paying customers have, have come here for. Our tent pole, Maurice Alberti. <laughs> here she is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. Uh, we are here today with amazing cinematographer. I, I can't even wait to get into some of her work. Maris Alberte. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Maris. Thank you for inviting me, Ben. So first and foremost, we're, we're actually here because one of our other guests, Ron Howard, threw out a plug for you and said that we should talk to you. Not that we didn't want to talk to you ahead of time, but you know, when, when Ron Howard asks you to do something, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you do it. And because he was making Finding Paradise, which is what we were interviewing him about, at the same time that he was making Hillbilly Elegy with you. Hillbilly Elegy is now on Netflix for anyone to watch. Let's talk a little bit about Hillbilly Elegy because that, you know, it was it was a, a big book. And Ron Howard, obviously, huge Oscar winning director. You've worked with a lot of humongous directors like, you know, Darren Aronofsky and stuff like that. What was it like coming on to the project and like what were the what were the things about it that drew you to it? A good script. Always a good script and a good director, followed by great actors. <laughs> so yeah. you can't really go wrong with that. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's a period piece, but it's a very recent period piece. It's like mostly what, 2013, 2014? It's, you know. Well, it's a really two time period, um, mm-hmm. late 90s and 2012, mm-hmm. uh, with a little flashback in 1947, I think. Yeah. So yeah. what was interesting is that I had to treat those different time periods. And from my very first conversation with Ron, I felt that okay, we kind of had, you know, how they say, be on the same page or, you know, mm-hmm. my ideas, his ideas, we could just keep on talking. We're not, we were not far apart. We, you know, we were having a good creative conversation, how to approach those time periods. And we, we kept on talking. We um, did a lot of testing, showing a lot of things. And then in the DI, push those ideas even further. And sometimes you have ideas and then they kind of really shift or change or people say, yes, oh, but no, that's too much. And this mm. really stayed on track and, and move forward. And I'm, I'm happy with what we did. In addition to it being sort of mostly rooted in two time periods with a couple of further deep flashbacks, but it's also kind of rooted in two worlds because you have sort of the button down world of of Yale, kind of the high society of Yale contrasted against rural Ohio and Kentucky. And can you talk about like how you went about visually differentiating those two worlds? Well, I mean, if you look at the movie, you can see that most of, uh, of J.D. childhood is shot handheld. Mm-hmm. is very rich in terms of the color and the saturation. And his world as Yale is a more uh, shot more on Steadicam and Dolly, and I would say more of a normal look in terms of you know the saturation and the color. There's a little yeah. bit of exceptions, but that was kind of the idea that the, the, the world of his youth as a, as a memory is, you know, and he was... It was rich and crazy and insane and 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 warm and family and love and and more craziness. But his relationship with his mom and his grandmother was one of of love. You know, mm-hmm. you know, the family can be crazy and and with a lot of drama. But you know, still the main thing that held everybody together was was the love and care for each other. And you talked a little bit about testing, and it's something I'm always interested in, in how people go about even kind of setting up and structuring the testing. But can you walk me through a little bit of like the process of finding the looks that you found on this particular movie? Like, how do you set up the tests? What, you know, what do you... Well, you know, this one, I, you know, since there was different time period and I, I really, I want you to give it a distinct look. My process really, I mean, I've done a lot of tests with a lot of lenses and I Mm -hmm. find that the difference in lenses is very is very subtle unless you go towards like old old lenses you know who have a lot of aberration that you can that you can embrace but for those and as for a lot of tests that I've done I I set up kind of a little scene I mean you know wait and I ask art department bring me some light bring me a sofa uh, bring me some drapes that you would like to test or to look at um, I ask the costume the department just bring some some looks that you want to see on film you know just bring mm-hmm. some stuff and then I would set up I would ask a couple of stand-in and I create whether it's inside or outside 
kind of little scene, I mean, not scene, but to people talking on the sofa, to people outside who are walking around or, or, or just one person by a lamp, you know, and then I start to light those, you know, in bright daylight and, you know, in carved nighttime, we're just like half lit or outside in, in bright sunlight. And then in the DI, I work with my colorist to just, you know, especially for here, Billy, to just look how much can I push the color on that? What happened to the red? What happened to the skin tone if I saturate too much, you know? And then mm. in the middle of all that, I, I tested a couple of lenses. I, I just do a little bit of a mix of lens testing, but also of costumes and, you know, so you, you start to have a, a sense of what the colors of the film could be, mm-hmm. you know, from every department and a sense of what I would do, well, what we will do with this color in the final product. So I presented that to Ron, you know, and he was, he was quite happy. And that was a little bit what we talk about, but here it was concrete, you know, we, we could look at it and we, we move forward with that. And I feel like, you know, obviously Ron, Ron has been a director for a very, very long time, but a lot of his ba- early background was acting. And to me, this is uh, Hillbilly Elegy is very much an actor's piece. The performances are, are kind of at the core of what's driving the movie. When you're working on a film like this, and I know that you have a lot of documentary work in your background, but when you're working on a film like this, do you come up with a, an approach to lighting that kind of allows the actors to move around more, especially a movie like this too, where it's so much well, yeah, handheld? Yeah, this film especially. I mean, Ron, when I interviewed with him, when I first talked with him, asked me, how do you feel with shooting two cameras all the time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I say, well, you know, no DP, right? Like really like <laughs> to shoot two cameras all the time. But if that's what you like, you know, then that's what I will do. And I think that helped me also to keep on being in the run with him. But just to say one thing about this film, I've really learned with Ron how to shoot with two cameras. I was always a little bit reticent, you know, like, you know, I was more of a single camera person, but I've learned a lot there. And in that spirit, and the spirit in which he wanted to shoot, which is to, you know, to let the actor go, go at it, go at each other. And... It's also something I always try to do, give the actors and the director the space to do the best they can do, because the film can be lit as beautifully as, as I can, you know, if the acting is no good, if the, you know, that, then it's not a good film and so it doesn't matter. So I really try to devise lighting where it would be lit from the outside, through the mm. windows, and then through lamps in the inside. And then I know also what you can do in the DI. You can darken this wall a little bit. You can shape that face a little bit. I know, I mean, I've really came to really embrace the DI and especially like in a movie like with Ron, I knew how far I could let things go without stopping to relight. But then when I really, I felt, no, I gotta, I gotta stop and, and relight that face at that moment. Oh, I would, mm. I would tell Ron and, and he would be, yes, you know, let's do that. So I think I gave him a lot of space and gave the actor a lot of space. But when I felt that I needed to serve the movie and to serve the actors, you know, I needed to stop and light, then that's what we did. 
A big thing that I, I thought about while I was watching Hillbilly Elegy, and, and obviously you have a great deal of narrative experience, but you also have a great deal of documentary experience. Yeah, I have more and, documentary experience than I have narrative experience. Actually. But I mean, like, and, and we'll get into it later, but some of that narrative experience is uh, highly stylized. But there is sort of a documentary-ish aesthetic, uh, specifically in the Ohio sequences in this movie, in that it feels like we're meant to feel a little bit like a fly on the wall in a lot of scenes. I always want to ask people who you know like sometimes we talk to people who do who do only documentary and obviously most of the dps we talk to almost entirely do narrative so someone like yourself who does both i'm just always interested in how your documentary work how it informs your narrative work and vice versa so on hillbilly elegy how did your documentary work kind of come into what you were doing here I think what you learn in documentary that you can bring on narrative is that to work very simply. I mean, you know, what I love about the world of narrative, if you need like six, 18 Ks, you can have them. I mean, on some budget, not on all of them, but but you also, you, you're not afraid to work with, you know, the, the proverbial single bulb, you know, you, you learn that word simply. You also learn I think it becomes instinct. Where is the best place to put the camera? You come in a room, you come in a space. In documentary, you don't have a lot of time to think. You don't have a lot of time. So you got to have that. You got to find where where do I go hide myself in the corner to to be the best place to shoot that scene. And that you can bring that to, uh, to narrative film. And then I think embrace also what naturalism is it's such because i think i'm 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 a little bit pegged in the in the naturalism that's what i've done more than stylized so so you know i'm at this point where what is naturalism and then embracing that and that comes from documentary because on documentary you you stuck with the gray light of today you you don't have the 18k to bring sunlight Mm. but also how to transcend that to push that a little bit so I've brought that from documentary and I'm I'm trying to use it and to transform it in the world of narrative. Uh, Ron had kind of mentioned to us that when he was making Frost Nixon, he would block the scenes and the DP wouldn't watch it or the operators wouldn't watch it. And then he would have them come in and kind of find the scene. And he, you know, he had a couple of shots that he knew he had to get. And other than that, he was kind of open to it. And I was wondering watching this, if he had done anything like that as well in this, because it feels like the, again, the actors are really driving the scenes for the most part. It doesn't like, you know, the stuff at Yale feels, you know, very, I guess, classic composed and shot listed and stuff and then the stuff in Ohio feels a little out of control in a great way well, I was wondering if Ron had had used that technique on this I think he did you know Ron came as you said like in the morning like he's funny he takes his script and he folds it in half and in the back of the half of one page he has scribbled a few points this is he wants to get that shot then that close up here and then the rest is kind of refined you know mm. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of on the day, you know, the finding, finding the scene with those points that Ron wanted to get. A great experience working with Ron. I mean, as you said, he's a very accomplished filmmaker. He's a collaborator. He's respectful of the people he's working with. He, he you know, is very smart to want to get ideas from the people that you've hired. He creates uh, an ambience on the set that is focused and hardworking, but relaxed, you know, 
uh, and yeah. fun. And um, at the end of the film, you know, like Glenn Close made this great speech in which she said, you know, at this point in her life where she is, she just want to work with good people. She just want to have a good time. And she really did on this film. It was one of the top film. I, I have a few top films that I've worked on, all very different, you know, with mm. all very different a director, but um, I, I had a, I had a great time on uh, on here, Billy, and we worked ten hour days. That was the best. Nice. Can't <laughs> complain about ten hour days. A ten hour remake. That's Man, very that's that. very civilized to think. I want to do that all the time. You can get a you can come to work with a full night's sleep. Yes, <laughs> yes, you can have a life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the stories that I once heard about Ron Howard that I, I think typifies what I keep hearing about him, and also in full disclosure, I worked with him on one project myself, so I. I can sort of back this up, but this, the story I heard was about Apollo 13, where he was working with the VFX team, and he had he has a, a rule. I think he calls it the six or half dozen rule, where if he has an idea and you have an idea, and he decides that your ideas are about equivalent, he goes with your idea, knowing you're going to work your ass off on your own idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> but it was very much... Very, very collaborative. And it's um, it's great to empower like that the people that you work with, you know. Yeah, no. I mean, I, that was that was my experience as well. Well, uh, let let's go kind of back to the beginning and kind of talk about you've you've been doing this for a long time and you've worked on so many different kinds of films. But I always like to ask too, like when was the moment that you realized cinematography was a career path and if i'm not mistaken blah, 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 blah. so so i never intended to be a cinematographer no i i grew up in the south of france and then my grandmother when i was 12 years old had the first tv on the block you know i went to see like a little bit of theater on the tv uh, the untouchables in black and white the rifle menace but it was so far from my consciousness the first film that i saw in a theater was the duel uh, Steven Spielberg. I, I, oh, I don't yeah. know who took. I don't know who took me there. I don't know how, but I always remember that black space with those people and that insane story with the truck and the car. That really. So good. I mean, what if my luck that the first film I see in the movie theater is a duel, and then the second film, maybe a year later, was uh, Harold and Maud. Oh Harold wow. And Maud. And yeah, oh wow. So those are the two films. And then when I first came to the state in 73, that kind of dates me, but uh, in 73, I lived uh, au pair, I came au pair in Yorkshire. And um, my first impression of the state where the cars were really big, and then there was a TV in every room. There was mm. a TV in the kitchen, there was a TV in the living room, there was a TV in my room. And I watched a lot of late show and late, late show. Then, like in the 70s, you could watch movie like late through the night, yeah. uh, uh, the late show, all black and white movies. So I kind of fell in love like with movie without really knowing it. And then, you know, I took pictures. I mean, I did a lot of things. I worked as a performance artist on trapeze and in theater. Oh, wow. I play music. I took pictures and that kind of stuck with me. And people, I, different people put me on that path. At one point, I did a movie, a documentary directed by Stephanie Black called H2 Worker, but the Jamaican sugarcane worker who live in slave camp in Florida. They've been closed since, you know. The film H2 Worker played in Congress. It changed some of the laws of the oh, H2. Wow. But the film went to Sundance and it won Best Documentary and I won Best Cinematography. And it was like, 
okay, I'm a cinematographer. Oh, wow. So that was kind of, you know, it's a short route. A few things happened, but that was kind of where I became a cinematographer. I was on the map. So that film really, yeah, you're on the map. That's what I tell people. I take, you know, I've, um, I've mentored a few, a few people. And what I've always tell, you know, like now you can make movies with a phone. So you yeah. have no excuse, you can film on the top. And then so shoot, shoot, shoot. And then at some point, start to choose a little bit, start to, and that's kind of a, a middle of a little bit of an instinct, a nose thing, and it's a little bit of, of luck and fate. But because you could do a great job on the bad movie, no one is going to know about you. You do a good job on a great movie, then that's it. You're on the map. Yeah. So that's how I came, I came about. That was the film who put me on the map, H2 Worker. It's a great film. And it's, you know, I watched it not long ago and it was like, wow, I was young. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> Pretty good. It's pretty I good. I just want to know if, because if, it's, it's interesting to me, I, I do ask that question sometimes to people, like, do you go back and look at your older stuff? Yes, well, it, it was interesting when you say, you said something about Velvet Goldmine. So I watched Velvet Goldmine not long ago. And first I was given the opportunity by Todd. I mean, I, I had done a couple of movies with him before, but to do this amazing visual movie. And I wish I was given this opportunity now with what I know and who I am as a cinematographer. Because when I watch Father Goldmine, I see this, this young, talented cinematographer, but still immature. I see immaturity. I see, wow, that's, that's great. I, I was, and I see I could have done that better. Or I see the immaturity in the work. And that's okay, you know, but... Well, I mean, I think that... Anyone going back and looking at the at their work, you know, twenty years hence is going to feel that way. But I have to tell you that Velvet Goldmine, I saw that in the theater and it knocked me on my ass. And I think it's it's probably my favorite Todd Haynes movie. And just the variety of looks and the you know kind of the cribbing of the structure of Citizen Kane and then making like a Citizen Kane allegory, but with a David Bowie esque character at the center. Yeah, of well, it that, and... that's Todd. That's Todd oh. Haynes you know imagination but, and visuals uh, absolutely but the visuals of that movie are all i mean it is it is a striking striking film and i also have watched velvet goldmine recently i think i watched it about a year ago and i was shocked at how well it, it held up because a lot of the you know the kind of the cool edgy indie movies of the 90s that i i loved and kind of you know uh, i won't say i grew up on because i was already you know in my 20s at that point but the, the, those those movies that were very influential to my thinking a lot of times you go back and look at them and they don't they don't quite pack the punch that they did back then and yet i look at that and i'm like oh a completely unknown christian bale and ewan mcgregor kind of like right right pre um star wars but also just like the the construction and the lighting and the lensing of the visuals that you created for that movie gave it well, uh, I mean, immense I power. have to give credit to, to Todd. Todd, mm. you know, Todd is an amazing visual person, amazing artist. He, I have, I have some of his drawings, actually. He gave me some of the drawings of the storyboard that are mm -hmm. little pieces of artwork. Yeah. But it was, it was very, very challenging, you know, and I was lucky to have done that movie. I, I wish I could find a movie like that now who gave me those opportunities. 
there's another movie from around the same time as Velvet Goldmine that I was a projectionist at an art house theater when this came out, so I got to watch it a lot. And it's the Todd Salons movie, Happiness. Uh, and Todd Salons to me is sort of a, a I, I don't know, he, it's not that he's reclusive, but he's just an interesting character in that like he kind of goes away for decades and then comes back and makes a film. And Happiness was an extremely provocative movie, to say the least. Very yeah. difficult movie. We worked 18-hour days. It was very difficult movie. We shot a whole storyline that never made it into the film. No, it was, really? It was a difficult film. We had some fun, but it was a difficult film. Well, he's, I mean, he's such a provocateur and he makes movies that are, you know, that really challenge the audience and kind of push envelopes. I guess it's like from kind of that big moment in in the 90s when, you know, independent films and independent voices were kind of the pulse of culture. So a movie like that would come out and really, you know, become a water cooler thing that people would would talk about. And I understand that they were lower budget. But when you're working on a film like that, like what was... I mean, I guess if you're doing 18-hour days, then, you know, probably your your freedom is, how do I ever get home? But talk about, like, working on something that, that is kind of so out of the mainstream. A film like that, I feel like, would never get made today. Well, I mean, we've entered that, that is this realm of political correctness, and mm. um, we have to be, I mean, I think, that, you know, the pendulum swings, and now it's swung too far to the other side, you know. It will come back. But, yeah, making a film now about, you know, a pedophile and, and you know, with, with such a sarcasm and such, a, in a way, a, a non-judgmental. I mean, I was, I have to say, as a mother and as, I remember, we taught when the son asked the father in you know after he was caught you know mm. when the son asked the father would you have fucked me i think he asked the father those very line and the father yeah. says yes i told Todd, oh my god man no no you can't you can't I know. say that and you know it was a really hard film to do a lot of things happened that i, I won't get into this film but there was a moment i always remember because I, I love the film family even when you work 18 hour days and the food is bad and you're exhausted and you don't get paid a lot because it's a non-union movie we were with philip Seymour hoffman when he is in is in his bedroom you know and he jerks off and then with the sperm he, he, he glued the postcards on this wall. Remember that scene? <laughs> of course so I do. So here we are. There was, there was some, young, some young art department person with a syringe and they're the like trying to make consistency of the sperm. And it's like, like it's the 18 hour in the day. We all crazy. And then we all start to laugh and to giggle because everybody's so tired. But this is so absurd and out there. And I'm looking around and I said, look at that. I love, I love making movies. I love this film family, you know, where, you know, we're still laughing. <laughs> you know? and that was one of those great moments. Um, I wanted to talk to you. There's another uh, documentary film that you made that I, I, uh, I mentioned earlier that I think is just like extraordinarily powerful. And I'm saying this as someone who I don't care about sports at all. But I remember going to see when we were kings in the theater. Oh, when we were kings, you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I can, you know what? This film, I did the interviews that link Mm. the footage that, uh, what was his name? Leon. Leon did, Leon did, he shot all that footage of the fight in Africa. And then I I just shot uh, all the interview with the, 
with Norman Mellor, with George Clinton, yeah. Spike Lee, Daddy Links. So I, I, you know, I was lucky. I met Mohammed Ali. I got a hug from oh, him. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I respect. But I thought you were going to talk about the Lance Armstrong film, The Armstrong Lie. Did you see uh, that? I would love. To, yes, I did see that. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're again, your filmography is just like outrageously extensive. And uh, that was because that's a sports film. And that was a great wow. film. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, actually, on the Armstrong lie, you it started as a positive documentary about him, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Well, he started as one film, Armstrong Come Back. You know, he's, he, he's coming back. It's yeah. like it's going to be his last Tour de France. Is, for our listeners, by the way, that's Lance Armstrong, the, the cyclist who won the Tour de France, I forget. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was. And the film is called The Armstrong Lie. It was not called that from where we started. It was his comeback and he gets, you know, he comes in third place and the, the youngster, the contador beats him, you know, and, and then all the shit that we all kind of knew but didn't know the extent of, all that stuff blow up and then the movie becomes something else. And then Lance eventually says, yes, he doped to an extent. I mean, I mean, I, he's still an amazing athlete. And I have to say, I like the guy, you know, I see mm -hmm. his very dark side, you know. Well, that was actually a takeaway that I had from that was like, is this guy a stone cold sociopath for being able to lie so easily about what he's doing? I, I don't think a stone cold sociopath, but um, a little bit <laughs> sociopath. <laughs> but look, Look what he did, the money he raised uh, for cancer awareness and, and what he did. I mean, he also did a lot of good. Sure. You can't take that away from him. He was a great athlete. He walked in, I mean, he still is one, you know, he walked into a sport that was already not very clean. What it makes him some kind of a sociopath is that he lied, everybody else lied. But when he was caught, he just kept on lying and going yeah. after the people who called on him. Like he was, he was nasty. He went dark, you know. But I, you know, we spent a year with him and following him, and I was so privileged. I did a tour de France from the inside. I mean, in a car. Oh wow! From the inside, and that was great. It was, it was great. Alex did a great job. It's a great film to watch. Is there a kind of underlying your work kind of a need to explore social issues? I mean, it, it sounds like you're- It seems that it's come to me, yes. Yeah, yeah. like- Well, like I mean, I am into, if you look, I don't do romantic comedies. Yeah. That doesn't really interesting too much. I was offered a musical. I mean, could be fun, but not. Yeah, I wanna, you know, I want something. It doesn't need to revolutionize the world or change the world, but just, Let's talk about something real. No, it just seems like you, your stuff gets into heady issues. And even like, you know, the ones that we talked about earlier, Velvet Goldmine, which is serious eye candy and just a gorgeous, beautiful film. But it also kind of deals with real themes, but also it's a big feeling. I don't know how what the budget was, but it's a big feeling movie with with uh, people who are all about to become giant movie stars. And it's very, very gay. And I f and I feel like those kinds of movies are especially in the 90s when that came out, it was taking a bit of a risk. You know, it, it, it wasn't like going over territory we'd never, ever seen before in that it had a homosexual uh, storyline. But the way that it 
approached it and the way it was, I, I also remember in the nineties, you know, if there was a gay movie, I'm not going to name names of them, but it was always like, it was the gayness was what it was about. And in the case of velvet Goldmine, it wasn't about that at all. It's just, that's what those characters were. And it was so brilliant in that way. Yeah. It was also about the fall of an icon or the change. And I mean, it's yeah. funny because when I was about to do Velvet Goldmine, I was finishing a documentary with Michael Arted about what inspires artists. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the people we worked with was David Bowie. I love mm-hmm. Bowie. I was so happy. I mean, I, I worked with that with David Bowie's cheek was against mine as we were looking through the viewfinder. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, he and the Dalai Lama was my like, hi. Uh, but, but, <laughs> David Bowie and the Dalai uh, Lama, yeah. together again. And, and uh, I think Todd asked uh, Bowie for the right to some of his songs and Bowie said no, you know, and, and Todd had asked me to talk to him, which I did, and he hugged me and he said, don't talk to me about that, Maurice. He just gave me a big hug. He's like, oh, wow. Like, we're doing good. Don't, don't talk to me about it. Because he was a critic of Bowie in the film. I mean, sort of, yeah, I guess. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look at the way Todd, you know, after you and McGregor, Bowie in the suit is portrayed by this not such good looking guy with like a, a wig. And uh, from Jonathan Rice Mayer to this guy, it was, I mean, it was Todd's vision of what Bowie had become. and it was Todd feeling let down by Bowie. And then you could look at what what do we want from our, you know, what do we ask of our icons? Yeah. Well, and, and also, and this never occurred to me until just now, but you having shot Iggy Pop and the Ewan McGregor character in that movie is based on Iggy Pop. Like how much of the actual Iggy Pop informed how you went about filming him? And also, also did no, you... nothing, nothing. nothing? Okay. I, filmed, I, filmed, I filmed Iggy Pop at um, the Palladium. I have, some, I have a great shot of Iggy Pop when he, he, he surfed the crowd. He was, he was insane. He was fucking crazy. You know, I mean, <laughs> really big, but I, I kind of liked him. Lou Reed was really nasty with me. Was and then he? I met, yeah, yeah, Lou Reed was really nasty. But then I met him again because I worked, I worked with a couple of artists. I worked with Laurie Anderson mm-hmm. and, um, and they were married, you know. So I met Lou Reed like 20 years after. And I told Laurie like what happened. He said, well, he can be like that. And then, and then Lou was like really cool. I made a couple of films with Laurie Anderson and, and one, and one with Lou Reed, you know, Frank Zappa drove me home in his limo. I used to live in the East village when the East village was not where the East village is, is right now. It was really funky. And Frank Zappa drove me home, which made me a star for a few days in my neighborhood, in my neighborhood, you know, it was very cool. So, yeah, that was all all good time, but no, that I like that didn't inform anything. <laughs> well, let's let's get into the wrestler a little bit because, as I've said, I'm a huge uh, Darren Aronofsky fan. I think he's one of the best indie uh, directors uh, that came out of the '90s. And the rest, like he had made the Fountain, which is a gorgeous, beautiful film shot by Maddie Lee Batik, but I don't think it had had the impact that they had hoped for. And I, and I almost saw The Wrestler as a comeback film for him in a weird way. In, in my opinion, he kind of broke form in every way from the techniques and stuff that he and Mehdi Lee Batik had you know, honed so many times together. And one of the things was to work with a, with a different cinematographer, you. And like, first, let me just ask you, what was it like kind of stepping into the role of cinematographer with somebody who had worked so closely with somebody else on all their other films? You know, when I 
first talk with Darren and first starting to work with him, you know, I mean, and I still have a lot of respect for Maddie. So he was not of only course. stepping into shoes of a great cinematographer, but also a great friend of Darren. They've been very close. It only had worked, you know, with Maddie. But very quickly, uh, Darren treating me like I was his partner and collaborator, and mm. that was really not a problem at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I assume it's not a problem, but I feel like you bring a, a different aesthetic uh, sensibility. And well, I mean, I think I, I brought it, but I, I think it was Darren's choice to treat mm. this movie very differently. And maybe because they had done such a different movie with The Fountain, you know, there was mm -hmm. such a, a different approach and the role of toys. And Darren wanted to strip down. Like, we didn't have a video village. He and I walk around with little iPads, you know, like yep. on the string. Yeah, he didn't want any of that. And um, what what he he told me he wanted this movie to be all handheld. And so I was good with that. Now, after in prep, after a few talks, and when I started to hear him said, I'll do 14, I'll do 16, I'll do 20 take if I need to, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I should hire a, a, a great <laughs> handheld operator, you know? And then also, I'm short, I mean, I'm 5'4. And so, you know, it would have required, you know, and I realized when I shot tests, you know, with Mickey that I needed some platform shoes and a bit of higher camera. So all came together and I find uh, an operator, uh, Peter Nolan, who was excellent. Excellent. I mean, as you can see, we did a great job. And, uh, and Darren and I, we designed and I really designed a lot of the shot. And Peter, of course, you know, gave what Peter can give, you know, and um, he had an amazing uh, stamina, you know, and um, what I like about when we tested like with Darren, the concept of the all handheld, a lot of it is behind him. And one single lens, the movie is shot on one lens, except for one scene. The movie really? is shot all on the 12 millimeter. Really? Like the e equivalent in 35 of a 24, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's one scene where Mickey and his daughter are by the water, framed by this window, uh, you know, this arch in the background. And that, when we did a close-up, we shot with a 50. That was the only time where we broke the rule. We shot with the 25 in 16, the, the, you know, the 50. And, um, you know, so often you talk with director and you have like those ideas, which like, in, you know, are, are great ideas, are bold ideas. And then you start to shoot and well, but maybe we should cover this and cover this and do that. And then that bold idea, that idea that would give the film a style kind of fall apart. But Darren, he committed to that and that's what we did. And I think that's what the movie has such a great look. And of course, the movie is, is Mickey Rook, is the yeah. performance of Mickey Rook and the choice of Mickey Rook that was well, not- In a career renaissance of Mickey Rook. Like Mickey yes, Rook it was, kind of been up, it, up. Was always, it was always Darren's choice. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, when I met Darren, there was another actor whose name I was, you know, a lot more famous. The budget was 
was bigger and and like into prep one day but Darren called me he said well I got the actor that I wanted for the finance but the budget is in half and your salary is half too oh man <laughs> but then when he told me who was the actor I was like wow yes if we can wrangle him he's the wrestler and we did and we did with the help of, of Scott Franklin the producer and it was it was great so we committed and you know that's what I, I wanted to talk about it like we committed to a look you know to a style to an approach and we stuck with it and no one told us to do anything different and that goes back a little bit to in Creed when and it was Ryan's idea to do that now with his well-known uh, fight scene in one shot you know mm -hmm. We really rehearsed that, and and the the boxer and the operator Ben Ben Semenov, who was great, did a great job. Is a little bit like doing a monologue. You learn your moves, yeah. you know. And we committed, and then they were like talk about let's do some shot in the audience, and you know just in case. And I told Ryan, no, we we, we because if we do it, then you're gonna be able to use it, or someone will make you use it. I don't know, but the the shots that we did, like take ten or take twelve, were great, and let's commit with that. And and we did that. And I think when you have a great idea and you execute it like great, and if you have the nerves and the support to commit to it even if there's no way back because you don't have anything else. You know? <laughs> but it's, um, it's, you know, it works. I wanna, I've always wanted to ask someone this question, but I've never uh, talked to somebody who, who, who went into detail about shooting a film in this way. But like, I'll see these, it might just be a graphic that pops up every now and then on cinematography related stuff in social media. That's like a list of all the movies that were shot with one lens. And it's always interesting, but as a viewer, I'm not aware of the effect that uh, watching a movie shot entirely on one lens or, you know, in the case of The Wrestler, except for one scene on one lens. Like, what is the effect that you think that has on, uh, what is it, what's the effect that it has on you and what is the effect that you think it has on the viewer? Well, first, it's good that you're not aware because, you know, the point is not to make you aware of that, but to, 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 uh, to make you feel an emotion, you know, mm -hmm. in that case, because the lens is a white lens, you know, uh, like the 12 in 16 is fairly wide. And we, we had to be careful, you know, in close up with the actors, there's a, a line uh, of a few inches where if you get too close, then it distorts and then you yeah. start to see the lens. But I think what it, it made us do in that case with that lens, you were always in, you were always in with the character you know when you shoot a close-up with a 65 or 100 millimeter lens it's a different feel that if you shoot that close-up with a 40 or 32 lens i'm talking mm. in 35 now because it you know if you shoot that close-up with a wider lens you have to be the camera has to be close to the actor so emotionally it's a different emotion that you feel as a viewer you feel that you are close to them, that you are in with them. Do you make that decision and say like, we're only rolling with a 12 mil for the whole show? Or do you have like other lenses just in case you're like, you're, you're screwed in a scene and the but only you way know out what? of it? I don't, I don't remember, but I'm sure we had, 
very few other lenses. We had the 50, obviously, mm. and I don't think we planned, but there was, we tested different lenses. I walked around the street of, of Brooklyn, like with Mickey, and we tested different lenses and we, we stuck with that one. But I think it was Darren's commitment to, to use one lens and mm. all handheld. And that movie also, like, I, I always think that finding a very naturalistic look, you know, where it just feels like we're dropped into a real location, that movie has that that look and that feel, but I always feel like that takes just as much work to accomplish as, as any other look. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Like, mm. for example, when you are in his trailer, you know, when we are with Mickey in his trailer, it feels very much, we feel very naturalistic it feels very much like this sad gray day in the trailer there's a bunch of 18k outside and bounce and all kind of stuff mm -hmm. like that so <laughs> it took a little bit of work to make that look now when you are in some of the venue like when he he starts to sell i think when, uh, when they go and he start to sell his signature you know in that very sad room i did very very little because i said wow that's I don't need to do anything to to create that mood that I'm seeing. I yeah. love that mood. This is the mood. This tells the story. So I don't do anything or very, very little. Mm -hmm. We went to look at a lot of wrestling fights, you know, and so you have a sense of the space. And then I started to see, to learn how a ring is lit, which I brought a little bit to Creed, you know. But a lot of the venue, we also shot those venue with real crowd. We went in there and then in between round of a real match, we were bringing Mickey. We had first announced to the crowd that we're making this movie, don't look in the camera, we're gonna uh -huh. interrupt your game. But, and most crowd were great, except the one in Philadelphia, you know where, where uh, it was like a really hardcore place. It's people are nuts. Um, where, you know, like <laughs> the guy, he stapled his forehead, where people like yeah. hit each other with barbed wire's bat. Or for, this is all real. The crowd was all real and thirsty for blood, literally, you know. You had some young women on the side that were, there, that were screaming, kill him, kill the fuck out of him, you know. Really? And then so we had announced <laughs> to the crowd, okay, so, in between bouts of real fight, we're gonna come in because Mickey didn't want to do like a whole fight. He could not remember the choreography of the whole fight. Mm -hmm. So we will go in and I remember that sometimes I was in the ring and I'm, I'm short, I'm small. I was all dressed in black with a cap and we shot with two cameras, so I had one camera. And as soon as we went in the ring, the crowd was chanting, Hollywood, get the fuck out. Hollywood, yeah. get the fuck yeah. out. And I'm thinking something. Philly fly on my head somebody's gonna throw something you know but but we made it you know and so it all feels real because it is that's amazing <laughs> well those scenes like all the wrestling scenes and that feel like what what they were like it didn't feel like a room full of paid extras who were being directed it felt like people they were not they were real people they they were the crowd they were the crowd yeah. and all those wrestlers all those guys were real wrestlers yeah no, that authenticity really shines through. That's and Mickey, sort of, because of who he is, he fit right in, you know. He really fit right in. It was so great. I mean, we had to wrangle him, you know. Me and Dad oh, were really? kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Scott uh, Scott Franklin, the producer, had to wake him up in the morning. And, and sometimes, you know, it was like, um, 
Sometimes I had, you know, I had to go and Mickey and put my hand in front of his face and say, don't even go there with me, Mickey, you know. But it was done all, <laughs> all, all in play, you know. Uh, and But That's he funny. delivered, man, he delivered. And Darren, I talked to him before, you know, I'm putting a lot of things in this movie. You have, you have to, you, you have to promise me that you're going to show up, you know. And, and he did, he really did. Uh, did you feel after doing The Wrestler and then Creed that uh, maybe you'd be typecast <laughs> and that you'd only be doing boxing and fighting movies? Only from grappling would be next. <laughs> grappling, yes. No, but <laughs> men in tights. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm strong, you know. Yeah. And when we were no, kids. Um, I was asked to do Creed 2 because I had a great time with the producer. We was happy. And um, I felt, you know what, Ryan is not doing it. I've done it. I don't need to do it again. Let's do something else. When you were when you were doing Creed, um, you know, because it reinvents the Rocky franchise. Yes, like, it, it does. It, it, it really, and in such a great. But that's um, Ryan who wrote that script. But like, did you, as a visual reference, look back at any of the Rocky movies, or were you we only did, looking? We did, but we look back more to what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Ryan, we would we would check check each other out, you know. Like the film reference that we had, that Ryan had, was the wrestler. Ah, <laughs> well, it was the wrestler. The gig. <laughs> so I knew I knew that one. Yeah, sorry. Good it was the wrestler and the prophet. Un Prophet, mm -hmm. you know that French movie, The Prophet, yeah. Jack Arnaud. So we looked at that, but when we looked at some of the Rockies movie, we were checking each other out. And do you like this color? Do you like this? Do you? No, no. Well, not really. Well, me neither. <laughs> and taking the good thing, like the iconic thing of the steps and, you know, and things like that. But yeah, it, it was reinventing. The first Rocky is really great. It is. After that, one could argue, you know. Yeah. But yeah, and Mike and Michael B. Jordan is such a doll, such I loved him. It was great. Great, great experience. Great crew, great experience. So let's move to maybe a, a slightly less happy thing. We've just learned of the passing of the amazing, legendary uh, director, Michael Apted, with whom uh, you had worked. What can you say about, about working with him? I mean, he was a legendary documentarian doing the 7-Up films, and then also he shot numerous. He's, he's sort of like, uh, in, in a sense, a lot like you. He, he, he worked in documentary and, and narrative as well. So I met Michael. I was quite young. I think I met Michael, like, 35 years ago or oh, wow. 30 years ago. And uh, I interviewed with him for a film called Incident at Oglala about the AIM, AIM movement, the case of Leonard uh, Peltier. And um, Michael was British, although he lived in LA, he was very British and his humor, it was very, very funny. And, but with a very dry, sarcastic sense of humor. And I <laughs> love that about him. He, he, he was very smart very, very smart. The last thing I did with Michael was a long form commercial called uh, the Blinding the Light. And he was probably at that time, a 70 years old, we went to Japan. And I was really impressed how his brain could take all the information that we were given and, and process it so fast, you know? And, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, very smart hardworking, committed, you know, that Michael, I was with him in the, in, in the jungle of Madagascar. He would pick up the tripod and, and climb with us, you know. Nice. I did a movie on the, the World Cup 
I did a film on the on the student of Tiananmen Square, where we were we were going from safe house to safe house in Beijing to talk to the student of Tiananmen Square who had escaped the, the square. Uh, um, that was like. 30 years, no, yeah, yeah, or 28 years ago. Yeah. And um, always a great collaborator. I mean, you had to be sharp. You had to be on top. You had to be focused. He didn't have a lot of um, patience, but he took me on many, many adventures. And um, he became, you know, when you start to hang out, the world of documentary is so small. You're such a small crew that you get close to people in a way that you might not get on a movie that has a crew of 50 or, or 100 yeah. people, you know. So I got close to Michael. We share a lot of our life. He's, he's going through a couple of wives, me going, having a baby, you know, and he he really supported that. When when we did uh, um, Tiananmen Square, I was, um, I, I was pregnant. Uh, when we started, and then when baby was born, we were, we were like we had the clearance to go uh, to Beijing and to go to Taiwan to do some recreation. And I didn't want to go because I didn't want to leave like my baby. And Michael said, "Well, uh, bring the baby." My husband came, you know, oh, wow. took the baby with us. So he was um, he was a friend. He was a friend. He was oh, a filmmaker I'm so sorry that, to I, hear about that, that 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 I respected and loved working with. And he was a friend. Yeah, and he has an amazing people. body of work, and I feel like his yeah. Seven Up movies are yeah. you know like associated. Oh no, that, that was amazing. I remember that I saw Twenty Eight Up. I didn't know who he was. I never met him, but I remember I saw it with friends, and we went out to dinner. And man, we had amazing conversation. Mm -hmm. And then six months later. I got a call to interview like with Michael Apted. It was like, wow, yes, 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 yes. And then I, I, I got the job. Well, I think that's an amazing place for us to leave it. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we go, where can people find your work online? Obviously, uh, you know, go onto any streaming service and tons of your work is there. But do you have a uh, a website or something? that You, you know, do? you know, I make art always and I do I have photographic shows and I don't have a website, which is to the chagrin of my dealer, but I'm going to do one. So eventually I will I will have one. But my agent has you know, a site where my work is, you know, that's easy to to find. And eventually I will have a, a website of my own work. Well, I, I would just encourage anyone to just look you up on IMDb and, uh, you know, if you are a lover of uh, Well, of I mean, films. IMDb I don't really like because there's like, I've never taken the time to, to, to clean it up. There's all kind of stuff, some films, I don't know what that is. And uh, I think it's a <laughs> bit of a mess. I think uh, my IMDb is a little bit of a mess. But if anybody is at all interested, you know, to look at the website from, uh, from that note, Dispoto, they have a pretty good website that represents my work. All right, cool. We uh, we will put a link to that in the show notes, and uh, I would encourage anyone to check that out. And again, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Uh, you know, your your work is just amazing. We're huge fans, and uh, we appreciate you thank taking you, the time. Thank you. So that was Maurice Alberti. Uh, everybody go check out Hillbilly Elegy, for God's sakes, and uh, go dip into her filmography. I, I'm still in love with Velvet Goldmine. I probably could have just done an hour and a half on Velvet Goldmine because I, I love that movie and I love the way it looks so much. Yeah, it, it was a great interview. I'm so glad that uh, she could come on the show. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, 
it is that time once again. It seems like uh, only yesterday we were doing this. Mm. I guess it was a week ago. It, was, it but, wasn't uh, quite a week ago. We're doing it a little early this week. That's right. It is a little early. Uh, so what is your short end this week? What, what do you got going on? All right. So I want to talk about NFTs, which is... NFTs. Non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens. And I want to bring it up mostly to rub it in everyone's nose that I was right. And I I want to say it was probably about three years ago where I don't even remember what episode it was on or we could pull it up. But I remember saying, like, I don't understand why in a world where we could have blockchain to track money, which is an it's a collective delusion. I hate to burst everybody's bubble. Money doesn't exist, doesn't have inherent value in and of itself. It's a thing we've all decided and made up. So, you know, with cryptocurrency, they came up with this blockchain technique. I won't even really call it a technology. I guess it's a it doesn't sound like it's a super high tech technology. And that's the beauty of it. But if I have a Bitcoin or if I have a certain amount of Bitcoin and I give it to you, I can't make a duplicate copy and keep it for myself. It is the, the, the blockchain is tracking it. And I was like, if we can track money that doesn't exist, why couldn't we track digital files of movies and music? Like, you know, when back harkening back in the days when you would own a CD or a DVD that, that would have the movie on it. And then like, if I sell it to you, I don't get to have it anymore because I sold it to you. I mean, yeah. And yes. and so NFTs have come along and that is exactly what an NFT does. And there was a, I don't need to get into all the details and I don't know them off the top of my head, but a piece of digital artwork sold for like $20 million or something ridiculous a few weeks ago. And it was sold as an NFT. And the question I have about NFTs now, uh, as opposed to like when in the days when DVDs and, and CDs were kind of going away, the, the, the days of owning your own media were basically just crumbling in our in our hands. And so I wonder if the NFT technology, if it's too late to save owning your own media. You know what I mean? Well, there is one small bit that you're missing with this discussion of NFT is that NFT is not actually owning the media, the electronic digital media, so much as it is owning a certificate of authenticity that says that you are the owner of this product or mm-hmm. this this thing. It isn't necessarily helping you on the replication part of it because there's a lot of digital art and digital media and stuff out there. It can still absolutely be copied and duplicated but it's claiming that then you are the one who actually owns what that is like you've seen the gif of the rainbow cat that sold for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars that doesn't mean that everyone out there now who has that gif suddenly uh now owes money to this person uh that person owns really the certificate of authenticity for that digital file yeah and man it is a slippery slope right now and i i had someone essentially describe the current market of nfts out there as rich people flexing <laughs> that, that that's that's uh I, I don't know if you've heard that but th- they were like hey you know uh there, there's a lot of furious bidding to snatch up some of these things and when that happens there's a theory working out there called the greater fool theory uh you know something has value as long as there's always a greater fool to come along and say it's it's worth more nfts might might be that and uh it already to some extent looks like like that's the case but yeah, i think it is all still too early to tell i think that there is a way that it can or something like it do exactly what you said before and uh, i got to give you credit the first time i heard of nft i was like that's exactly what ben said that is exactly <laughs> what ben said in short ends on the show years ago and here and here this is but it's slightly 
different and i I, mean, I i hope i hope it gets there so yeah yeah i mean i guess that's my my big question is could it get there like yeah i understand that right now it's mostly people dealing in art like in the art world has always been the weird play space of the over rich buying things with perceived value but i do wonder if it could trickle down to us plebes where uh i could own a movie or i could own a cd i i always feel like with the digital world that we're in which i benefit from we all benefit from it you can have access to any piece of media you want until it's not there until the movie that i want to watch on shutter gets dropped on shutter this month because that their license agreement or you know and it happens on netflix it happens on hbo max it happens everywhere and so i start to wonder the the ownership mentality where i own a dvd i own a piece of media i'm the media collector like none of us need to be media collectors now because we just kind of have these giant aggregator creatures out there that we subscribe to and we can get mostly what we want and again until we until it's not there i i bring up shutter because i love the john carpenter movie prince of darkness and it was on there for a while and i wanted to watch it again for some reason some time ago and i was like oh man i could really watch prince of darkness right now and it wasn't on shutter anymore and i was like what you know if i had a blu-ray of prince of darkness just pop the blu-ray in but but i do think that media collecting in and of itself is kind of a lost thing because it's really been not the end of the it hasn't been like that long but i'd say it's probably been about 10 12 years since you know you remember going into like a tower records or a virgin megastore or even a barnes and noble and there'd be a huge vhs or vhs there'd be a huge dvd section there'd be a huge cd section and you could kind of poke through it or you know if you were going to the movie theater most movie theaters were right near a record store and you'd go there and kind of think about cds you might buy or magazines or 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 movies and now rightfully in a lot of ways and also i feel like something is a little lost that like none of that culture exists anymore We're, we're just kind of all you know, picking over the uh, collective shit pile of every movie ever made. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, go on Amazon Prime and look at like the weird motley assortment where they're like, oh, you liked this movie. And then they'll like line up like 20 weird ass movies that don't belong in any kind of category together. Anyway, I'm just interested to see if NFTs are if the idea sticks around and if it does uh, do we start to buy, sell, and trade uh, digital assets like music, like movies? It, it's a great question. It's too deep of a thought, actually, for the for where we can go with this. I I hope it's true. I think that I think we will get there. I, I hope so. I, I just don't know exactly how that uh, how I don't know what that world looks like. Just yeah, yet, I so. know. It, it, we've all uh, adjusted to the world that we're in now, you know, and thanks to uh, a giant economic recession and the rising of piracy and the rising of things like. YouTube and a million other things that kind of got us off of media collecting and got us into the the streaming world in general. The streaming world protects people from piracy just because it disincentivizes it, really. Anyway, so what is your short end, Ilya? My short end is a new Netflix movie called Bad Trip. And Bad Trip is, well, you know, it's produced by tremendous amount of talent, including uh, Ruben Fleischer, friend of the show. And it stars Eric Andre. And in very many ways, it feels kind of like an offshoot of the Eric Andre show, if you've ever seen that. I know I've talked about it on the show. It is a, a surreal, juvenile, wild sort of ride. And uh, they have a bunch of other producers and people who are involved in it who have been in in Bad Trip, that is, who have been involved in things like uh, Jackass and uh, different sorts of like reality sorts of, of television. And the movie does a really good job of blending together 
crank style shows inside of a framework of a feature film. And it's a rather simple story about uh, about love, essentially, um, <laughs> in the most fractured, fractured sort of way. But but really, the, the point of it is, is that part of the enjoyment from this is the outrageous humor, uh, which is what you might expect from all different types of movies. But because this is all taking place, this whole feature film is shot in public with the general public sort of playing themselves like unaware of what's going on. It very much has a, a Borat sort of uh, feel to it, but all the cameras are hidden. So you get the, these hidden cameras that they use and they use a lot of the same techniques and you see a little bit in sort of the credits. They, you almost get this sort of like cannonball run sort of like outtake thing where you see, but behind the scenes. And I didn't want to like the movie as much as I did. I mean, I didn't want to admit that I was so enjoying it, but I really, really enjoyed this and I have to, to highly recommend it. But as I was starting to blow in the, uh, in, in the close focus, this movie is not really like anything else that I can think of, except for maybe Borat. And uh, it's certainly not like anything else on uh, Netflix. But when the movie ends, and this is really interesting, the Netflix streaming service decided to recommend, they're like, oh, if you watch this, here's all the other things that you that you will like, which include like a bunch of TV 14 and TV like youth seven rated things that are like kids programming. And I do not understand how this sort of like, hard R sort of, uh, or TV MA that you would put on something that's like label on something like this, uh, how you would possibly make the connection then to children's programming. Mm. But, um, you know, uh, it, it, it completely boggles the mind as to what Netflix is thinking, but Netflix really doesn't know who I am or what I just watched. And clearly like people who watch this probably didn't actually like that. So that, that to me is, do you think uh, it might it, just have to do with your kids watching stuff on Netflix on your Netflix? Maybe, but that's really bad that it says like, oh, you finished this. Now watch that. That's like the, the two things don't seem to be related. And frankly, my kids have their own profile. So all the kids oh, program gets so, watched yeah. through that. Well, so there goes that theory. Even, so Yeah, my my other theory is just the, like a bunch of uh, stoners sitting around eating Cheetos watching, you know, weird kids shows like My Little Pony. <laughs> yeah, there's there's graphic depictions of like bestiality and all kinds yeah. of things in this that is like you just do not uh you, you like there's no way that i mean totally appropriate like absurdist humor for adults and i i do have to give credit to uh katao sakurai who is the uh director of this who also has been working with eric andre for it looks like a very long period of time with the eric andre show if you are familiar with that show and familiar with sort of like the style and genre of what's going on, even though it's not that show, you'll really like this. It is uh, lowbrow humor at its best. That's fun. D- did yeah. you ever see it's like a really old web series from probably over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago called Ikea Heights? I, I heard about Ikea Heights. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely. think it's still I, out there. And it was a show that, to my knowledge, was either a weird publicity stunt for Ikea or shot in Ikea's without the knowledge of Ikea. But it, the, the filmmakers realized, like, there are all these sets. So you've got, like, a bedroom and a kitchen and whatever. And they would, like, stage scenes that would happen in these in these rooms and come up with characters and have weird flashbacks. And it was all shot inside an Ikea. I thought it was very clever. This yeah, makes me I, think I, of that. I knew someone who who worked on one of those. I don't know if it was IKEA Heights or something else, but it, it starred. Uh, it had it had a legitimate like you know celebrity. I don't uh, think IKEA act. Heights had anyone. 
shit. In. Well, there, there, there was one that did. Um, you, you would see like a lots of not just a customer or two, but just people walking around in the background looking at, you know, on wars and shit. It's uh, I, I think that that adds to the humor. I think there's a there's a level of like what? And, you know, it's <laughs> uh, Tiffany Haddish is in Bad Trip and she's totally made up so she doesn't look like her normal, you know, glamorous self. And she is like a bulldozer when she rolls into these scenes like in public with like no fear playing this you know uh just like hardcore gangster convicted uh <laughs> you know uh two teardrop tattooed <laughs> prison escapee and people like look at her like what the hell's going on and uh she just like shows up into these scenes and just like destroys everyone's like preconceptions of what's about to happen and then kind of disappears and does this over and over and over again and it's wonderful and it's amazing to me too though that because like once you know it's her you can definitely see it but they do a great job with the with the, with the makeup but no at no point do you actually see anyone going like oh i know who eric andre is or i know who tiffany haddish yeah. is or i know who uh little ray howry is or any of the other people who are or, who are in this and uh and because of that it just completely works and and as you would suspect, sometimes it doesn't exactly work or they they did multiple takes of it. And in the credits, you get to see some of these like alternate takes and alternate cast and alternate things that they they, they had to do, because frankly, a portion of the show is just that, you know, whoever they got to also be in that scene, which maybe they had some sort of uh, trumped up reason to have like a plumber show up to someone's house or something to be the victim of, of you know, a prank shows like that uh, since I've lived in L.A., have always made me, especially with the rise of reality television, which happened shortly after I moved here, uh, always make me wonder if I'm on a prank show, if something really weird is happening. I remember once I was at a, a, the worst seafood restaurant I've ever been to in my life, and it was in a part of town that I don't usually go to. I think it was near Marina Del Rey, and it was just in a storefront. Like it could have, you could have loaded it in that day, and the waiter was so weird, and everything was so odd. I'm like am I on, is this a prank show? And then you I might just, have been. I decided to be as unfunny as humanly possible and, and not in any way entertaining and just roll with whatever weirdness this guy did just in case. Cause I didn't want to be on their stupid show, whatever it was. I just wanted, you know, some red snapper anyway. Well, uh, what, what's really funny is, uh, I don't know if you happen to hear Sasha Baron Cohen's acceptance speech for his WGA award, where he basically said that the public was full of surprises for, for the Borat subsequent movie film, and they never knew what they were going to get, except for Rudy Giuliani, who gave them exactly what they were expecting. Oof. And more. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Awful. Well, anyway, uh, uh, Ben, I think that just about does it. What, where, uh, where can people find you? Please go to benrockonline.com and you can uh, find all my social media connections there. You can watch my reel, see some of my work, uh, link to uh, the Video Palace podcast, some other crap that I've done, all kinds of cool right. crap. I, I don't mean to call my stuff crap. I'm very, I'm very proud of all of it. I'm just saying, go there, watch some of my crap. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I'll, I'll go there and watch some of your crap. How, How about fun? yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, sponsor of the show. We sell equipment. You know, it's it's amazing how often uh, people tell me that they don't realize that Hot Red Cameras sells things. So I figure I should just make it clear here. If you're still listening to the show and you run a company and you have like an in-house video production department or you're a government or, yeah. you know, uh, basically anything we, we sell to everybody from uh, the U.S. Army to, uh, you know, all kinds of like to a, a major billion dollar toy company that produces all their commercials in the house uh, or and individuals all like, you know, film students. We get we get people all over the country. I yeah, just recommended you so. and I told him to call you uh, to my friend Carlos, who's in the market to get like the newest, greatest, 
red camera and a whole set of lenses. And I was like, and he was asking me questions about what I thought of the lenses. And I'm like, honestly, I, I am not the authority on which lenses are good and which lenses aren't good. And I would say test a bunch of them and see which ones you like the most. But I also said, call Ilya because he will give you the straight dope on all of it and he will make sure that you don't get ripped off and then, you know, theoretically buy it from him too. Although he's not in he's not in California, so I don't know if that. Well, would that means he doesn't pay any sales tax. That means if he buys something from me, there's no sales tax for him. Sweet. Hot red cameras only exist in California. So if you are outside of this state, or if you are some other part of the world and you do want to buy something, we don't have to charge you any. Or we, actually, I shouldn't even say charge. Collect. We don't get to keep that money. We just collect it on behalf of our government. So that's uh, uh, that's, so that's really. So Carlos, hilarious. if you're listening to this, and I know you might be, call Ilya. Yeah, I'll help you out. I, I am actually an authority, so I can, yeah, I can help you with that. Not, and not just you, like your, everyone at your company knows so much yeah. about, about the gear that you guys sell and, and you take pride in uh, not ripping people off and not, you know, like, like finding the solution that, that meets their needs as economically as possible. No, we're, we're pretty much an outlier because we don't have anyone on commission, not a single person. In fact, I, I like to joke and say we don't even have a sales department, but really, I guess technically that's, that is what they're doing. But really, their their whole, uh, my team is incredibly technically competent and uh, not motivated to sell you as much as possible, which is basically different from every other shop out there. So that's that's kind of, I, that, I think that actually is what makes us great in, in a lot of regards is that people call up and we're not trying to shove things things down their throat or just trying to get them to buy the most expensive thing. We really have long-term relationships and we want to make sure that people get what they need. So this this is turned into a uh, impromptu and unexpected commercial for hot red cameras. But Infomercial. But been, I call it yeah, an, infomercial. It's infomercial. It's chock-a-block <laughs> with information. It um, is. Look at all the information we just, we just spewed out there. Anyway, so uh, Ilya, who do we need to thank this week? Uh, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, who's going to listen to this, and she's like going to be going, "Wow, you know, it took a long time to get to my thank you." And then they're going to, she's going to tell Ben Katz <laughs> to cut out everything and get and to that thank you. I don't you mean first. to be like yeah. this, but she really does get paid in thank yous, just like you that's, and me. That's pretty so, much it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the big money, the big thank you. So. <laughs> uh, let, let's thank Kays. Kays and I are working on a little thing together, so it should be fun. I didn't know you and Kays were working on a thing. It just happened yesterday. So, and the thing uh, about you and Kay's working on the thing is you said that, and I'm like, you could be making a giant CGI UFO. You could be setting up your resolve suite in your screening room and tweaking it out and making sure all the colors are, are all perfect and the projector is calibrated properly. You could be doing a camera shootout and, and comparing several different cameras. I don't even know what the hell you and Kay's could be doing because Kay's does fucking everything. Well, uh, I, I, it involves music. And, no uh, oh my god <laughs> and that's and, and that's uh, the one thing that case like when he moved to la he was a composer and now i'm assuming that uh you know when you first brought it up i was like oh well, it's got to be something visual because he's like you know he's he's a visual everything but of course he's also an amazing composer he composed all the music you heard in this episode you know, there's a visual component to it, too, but I'm, uh, you know what? Kays is not going to hear this. He's not going to listen to it, so <laughs> I can say yeah. whatever I want now. Well, go to musicbykays.com anyway and, uh, and uh, you know, harass him. And, and let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, I didn't make it easy for you on this episode. I hope that we end up sounding uh, halfway competent. I think we sound okay. Correct. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we're, I, I hope so. Well, I'm a little ben punchy, sure. but, you know. Ben will make sure we do cool well uh thank you very much and we will see you next week for another exciting episode of the cinematography podcast thanks for listening
This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.